Hi, Cynthia and Tricia. Um, I'm calling in because I have a question about postpartum support. My question for you is regarding boundaries with in-laws. My son is four and a half months, and he is so interested in food. My question is, what is the best way to diagnose intrauterine growth restriction? Women are often told that their baby has IUGR, but there's all this lack of consensus about what that really is. In my friend's birth plan, she had delayed cord clamping listed. The doctor went against her wishes and cut the cord immediately because her son came out smelling funny. I think it's just an excuse to be like, yeah. oh, we got to get this. Just, it's just you, like any uh, your baby doesn't follow. smell right. Yeah, <laughs> something doesn't seem right. Let's, let's go evaluate the baby. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. You think we made her feel bad? We I don't, don't want, know. We don't we want told Glenda her to, she's not allowed to be called mama. We don't want Glenda to feel bad. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Glenda. Welcome okay. to our October Q&A. If you don't know what we're talking about, listen to the beginning of the September Q&A, <laughs> where Glenda, the expecting, do I say expecting grandmother? Does that make any sense? Yeah. She wants to be called mama, and uh, the daughter-in-law is not having it, and <laughs> we've we have a friendly Glenda on our Instagram page who writes to us a lot, and it is a it is a grandmother who has a daughter in law who's pregnant. So we hope we haven't betrayed Glenda in any way by supporting the daughter in law's right to not have her mother in law be called Mama. It's weird. Well, it's weird. The point is, it's the mother of the baby's choice. It's her choice. That's the conclusion of it all. And this is just the first of many times in your life that you are going to have to make decisions that not everybody agrees with. Mm -hmm. Okay. What have we got? Well, one of our uh, followers sent us a message that she was hoping that we would share with our community um, because it was something that she, something that happened to her pre-pregnancy that impacted her birth and she wanted people to know about it. So I'm just going to read what she wrote in. She says, Hi. My favorite way to start. <laughs> no one knows that story. Uh, no, the I was just realizing time, that was way back in the beginning. The first time we ever turned on a microphone, we're in the studio, remember? Yes. And our, just, you couldn't favorite. get the word hi out. What were you doing? You're <laughs> no, like, hi. It just never sounded right. I was hi. like, hi. 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 And at the end, hi. we're like, don't start with hi. Just say something other than hi. It just doesn't work for me. <laughs> So here we uh, go. Hi. <laughs> so I wanted to <laughs> so I wanted to share, I wanted to share something to hopefully help other women. I had a VBAC in July after a 36-hour labor. It was pretty traumatic. It's a long story and I'm happy to share it in full. But apparently the reason for my long and non-progressing labor was a cervical scar tissue issue. I had a leap biopsy in my early 20s. I was never told it could affect my pregnancies and birth but apparently scar tissue on the cervix from a leap or even an IUD can cause what I have. 
what I had very irregular contractions that do not progress. I spent 30 hours in labor with irregular waves lasting six hours of which were excruciatingly painful. And I only dilated to two centimeters. It wasn't until I was given an epidural and a fully bulb that I went from two centimeters to seven centimeters so fast that I bred bled profusely. They thought my uterus ruptured until they realized it was the cervix rapidly opening. If you know about this and you think it's happening, your provider can manually massage the cervix to help break up the scar tissue during labor or use a fully bulb. Anyway, I had never heard of this. And so I wanted to share in case knowing about it beforehand can help someone. Maybe you've discussed it. I love your show so much and you do an amazing job at bringing stuff like this to light. So women can hopefully know and avoid interventions. And then she sent us a bunch of nice links on cervical scar tissue and how it can affect pregnancy and birth. So I think the point of this is that when she was in her twenties, young, went in for a regular pap smear, found something on her cervix that needed to be addressed, removed. It was never discussed with her that this could impact her pregnancy and birth by leaving scar tissue on the cervix. What left it there? What's a leap? You know, when you go for your pap smears, you get screened for cervical lesions and a leap is one of the procedures that's done when you have a cervical lesion that needs to be removed. And it's not always necessary. It's sometimes it's an option to wait and watch. And in this case, this woman wasn't informed of how it could impact her pregnancy and her birth experience, especially. And the fact that she was having this massive bleeding during labor could have led her down a whole different path. She could have had an an emergency C-section because they could have thought the uterus was ruptured or something like that, or the placenta had abru- placenta had abrupted. Who knows? But I can't again, see why it would cause the slow dilation because scar tissue in the cervix impacts how it stretches and opens. And can a provider that easily touch it and break it up just like that? Doesn't that take a lot of work and a lot of time with maybe a pelvic floor specialist or someone? I think that she, the fully bulb and the power of her uterus eventually broke through the scar tissue, but that's why she suddenly dilated really rapidly. That's Mm -hmm. why she potentially had irregular contractions. Mm -hmm. The point is more that about the informed consent that when she had this procedure in her twenties, nobody was talking to her about how this could impact her labor and any procedure that's done that impacts your cervix can impact your labor. All right, let's get started on our first question. Hello, I'm a Midwestern girl who is currently 36 weeks pregnant with our first. I found your podcast just over a month ago, and I completely fell in love with both of you during the first episode I listened to, which was the Pitocin episode. My question is about evening primrose oil. In my friend's birth plan, she had delayed cord clamping listed. The doctor went against her wishes and cut the cord immediately because her son came out smelling funny. Nothing else was wrong with him. And my friend thinks he came out smelling funny because she used evening primrose oil in the vagina in the weeks leading up to her birth. And I'm wondering if there's any way to her theory and if evening primrose oil can cause this to happen. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And it would be a dream come true to hear my question answered on your show. Thank you. So that's a interesting one. <laughs> I, I just I just picture this. You know, we we shared the really 
really compelling evidence on evening primrose oil, I think in our August Q&A episode. And I'm hearing that this woman had a vaginal birth, which, which, you know, works well with that research. Cause that's what it showed. Like you face very quickly and the births in the studies were a lot quicker, but you don't picture the thing. I always tell my clients, like, we can't preempt everything. You don't know what's, you don't know what's going to happen in birth. No one pictures the moment where a doctor is going to see that baby and say, it smells funny. And I'm taking it away and washing it. It smells funny. How on earth is that a justification for taking the baby? What, what a, what a difficult to prove situation to be in. It's so, it's so random. It's I'm trying to, get, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get in the head of this doctor and figure out what, what he or she was thinking. And the only thing I can think is that they maybe assumed that there was an infection. Um, then maybe there had been an, in a choreo or some type of infection that had gone undiagnosed, but it doesn't matter that the baby smelled. If the baby is transitioning after birth, absolutely fine. Why are you taking the baby away? And even if the baby isn't transitioning, we believe that baby should be left intact. The cord should be left intact and the baby should be left close to the mom and they can get the help they need transitioning right there on the mother. But most providers don't practice that way. Um, but sm- the baby smelling is not a reason to cut and clamp the cord and take the baby away. Now, evening primrose oil does have a smell. So it could be correct that it could be correct that the use of evening primrose oil in late pregnancy did result in a smelly vagina and therefore a smelly baby. Um, it looks like vitamin E in the capsules. What does it smell like? I think it can have sort of like a, a little bit of a, I'm going to get one right now. You have one? I swear I do. I I have it. Hang on. But it's also kind of how it interacts with your vaginal flora can change the odor. So Cynthia is going to do a evening primrose oil smell test for us. (laughs) I got a little sharp knife. Got a paper towel because I'm anticipating having to really wash, wash the smell off if it's that, but it looks like, okay, it looks like a vitamin E capsule. Yeah. It's all right. I just ruptured it. Okay. Now sniff. I smell absolutely nothing. Nothing. So sometimes oils change smells over time after they are exposed to oxygen. Um, but also, I don't smell it, it, one it, thing. It's like yeah. if my eyes were closed, I would think there was nothing in front of me. I think it may have to do with how it might, how it interacts with your vaginal flora. Oh, there you go. I'm not doing that experiment. No, there's only <laughs> sure. so far I go. I have my boundaries, you know. <laughs> it's the multiple dosing over time. It has would... absolutely no scent. Come on. Yeah. Well, how much I... can it possibly mix with vaginal flora and change into something that's? Well, have no. you ha- have you ever had? Bacterial vaginosis? <laughs> no, but if I did, I wouldn't talk about it. <laughs> just leave it so evening promos can have that effect. It could possibly in some women. Yes. Mm. And I think that's what this doctor was picking up on. It smell. It sounds weird. If she hadn't used evening primrose oil, I wonder if this same thing would have happened. I think it was just an excuse to be like, yeah. oh, we got to get this. It's just, it's just like any. Mm, it smells funny. Follow. Yeah. Something doesn't seem right. Let's, let's go evaluate the baby. Yeah. Your baby doesn't smell right. What a thing to remember about the moment your baby's born. The whole thing smells fishy to us. Hi ladies. Uh, My name is Sarah. I'm from New York. Big fan of the show. You both changed my pregnancy for the better. I'm currently three weeks postpartum and still benefiting from the podcast. My question is for Trisha. Do you usually mention when talking about breast milk that the chart for breast milk storage is not true? that breast milk can be out for longer than four hours after pump, 
My question is, how long do you think breast milk can be left out for? And also, what makes breast milk go bad? All right. Thank you. All right. Good question. Do you remember how long you ever left your breast milk out for? Uh, I don't remember that, but I remember worrying about it. And then later, when I started offering breastfeeding workshops at my business and hiring outstanding people like you to teach those classes, I learned that under a microscope, breast milk is a living substance with enzymes and white blood cells. It's like got this, it has this self-cleansing property to it. So I think her question is a good one. When is too long? When, when is it too long? Yes, it is a live food and it is antimicrobial and it is kind of, it does keep itself in check. The bacteria that can be harmful can build up. You can't leave breast milk out forever indefinitely, but you can leave it out for longer than Google will tell you. The CDC says four hours. The Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine says um, four optimal, six to eight under clean conditions. Um, and then various lactation consultants say 12 to 24. There are studies that do show that at 24 hours under clean conditions in a, a, a room temperature situation, which is like 65 to 80 degrees, that at 24 hours, the bacterial count of the breast milk is still safe for a healthy newborn, not a preemie, not a baby who has some underlying compromised immune condition or illness, but a healthy baby. So what we're really talking about here is optimal versus okay. So what's ideal? What's ideal is to feed your baby your milk directly from your breast. What's ideal after that is to feed your baby your pumped milk as, as fresh as possible, as soon as possible after you pump it. Four hours is the point where it does start to change a little bit. And the longer it stays out, the more bacteria that can build up in the milk but it's still okay for many more hours than what the CDC says, what Google says. You can always check your milk. Sometimes it can smell soapy, fishy, or metallic, and that does not mean your milk is rancid or gone bad. That has to do with lipase activity in the milk. But if you taste your milk and it's sour or rancid, don't feed it to your baby. So you will know by the taste. Yeah, you can test it. Yeah. Okay. Little shot glass. Just a sip, whatever. Sure. The takeaway is the sooner you feed your baby the fresh milk, the better. But you don't have to immediately get your milk in the fridge. And if you accidentally leave your milk out overnight or you slept a little bit longer, don't panic, don't waste milk. It's still better than the alternative, unless it's truly gone bad. Hello, lovely ladies. I appreciate everything that you do. I'm learning so much and I can't get enough. So thank you. My question is, what is the best way to diagnose intrauterine growth restriction? A friend of a friend recently had a C-section because of that reason, which got me thinking, um, considering how inaccurate ultrasounds can be, uh, what are the diagnostic methods um, that should be used if that is a concern. Thank you very much once again for your time. So on October 12th, we had episode 182 with Rachel Reed, PhD, and she has written a few books, but one of them is called Why Induction Matters. And she has a chapter in her book dedicated to this very topic. So IUGR is intrauterine growth restriction. 
And according to Rachel, women might sense that this is potentially going on because of decreased fetal movement, but the only way to actually diagnose it is to assess the function of the placenta, not the size of the baby, the function of the placenta. So that would be done with umbilical Doppler assessment via ultrasound. Um, Very important question because this sort of comment gets thrown around a lot. And for example, in our episode number 150 with Rachel Reed, she talked about the rhetoric around calcified placentas and how it can imply that babies aren't going to get what they need from the moms. But often at the same time, they're trying to incite fear into those moms because of babies getting too big. And that just doesn't add up. So actual IUGR has to be diagnosed after doing an umbilical Doppler assessment via ultrasound. I think another important point to make on this is that IUGR um, is, there is no, there is a lack of consensus regarding what IUGR actually is, what the etiology of it is, and what the diagnostic criteria are. And there's also uncertainty around if a baby is diagnosed with IUGR around the optimal timing of birth. Is it better for the baby to stay in the uterus with IUGR another week or to be induced and born and grow outside the uterus? This is why this is such a tough topic and and women are often told that their baby has IUGR, but there's all this lack of consensus about what that really is. And I think also it it can be diagnosed via placental sufficiency, um, but often it's not really confirmed until the baby is born. And then there are signs that they can see that the baby had malnutrition or um, poor growth in utero. I think it's important too to understand um, with IUGR, you have to get kind of to the root cause of what the underlying problem is. The problem can originate in the baby. It can originate in the mother or it can originate in the placenta. It can be behavioral habits of the mother, such as smoking, drugs, alcohol. Um, It can be chromosomal abnormalities in the baby. It can be related to a maternal infection. And then there can be some genetic things related to the placenta. So I also just want to point out, because we talk a lot about how the placenta doesn't quit on your baby. The, The placenta doesn't have this aging out process that a lot of mothers are told that their placentas are not doing their job anymore, that their placenta is getting old, their placenta is getting calcified, and they're told that the baby has IUGR. So placentas can have insufficiencies when there is an underlying condition, right? The placenta can not do its job effectively when there is an underlying condition that is a true case of IUGR and the placenta is not efficiently, effectively growing the baby anymore. But just like you said, at the same time that they're telling mothers that their babies are getting too big, they're saying that the placenta is not functioning properly. And that's just an illogical contradiction. And if you're told that your baby has IUGR, you really need to get to the underlying cause of what that is. And then again, there's no standard practice for determining when the baby should be born versus whether the baby is benefits from staying in the uterus longer. Did you see that message we just got on Instagram this morning from a doula whose client was told her baby's head is measuring five days too small? It, it, that, it's, come on, 
That's crazy. Five days doesn't seem like a lot. It, it, all um, of it is crazy. I mean, we're trying to measure the circumference of a head in utero now. Is there really anything to that? Well, certainly if the if the head is not growing properly, yes. Five days but behind. five days doesn't... Like, That's, come I mean, on, that, there has to be more yeah, variance that, than that in I the would, size of a head would, on a baby. Yes, I would think so. But it's it's really about looking, well, if the baby's head is measuring five days behind at 32 weeks, and then you measure again at 35 weeks and it's measuring two weeks behind. Now we have a problem. How can they possibly know how big the head should be? Look at how it should grow at a certain rate. It's not really about the absolute size as much as it is about the rate of growth. I thought it was the absolute size compared to the bat to the body and proportion to the body. Yes. I don't trust ultrasound for any of that. Ultrasound is not good at predicting fetal weight. We know that, but bone, bony measurements, it is pretty accurate. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hi, my question is, do I have to pump at night to maintain my supply? I'm 16 weeks postpartum and lately I've been having vertigo at night. My doctor thinks it's hormones or dehydration or stress. I can manage to nurse at night, but I can't sit up long enough to pump the other side. I close like I get up, nurse one side and pump the other, but I can't when I'm this dizzy. I'm worried about needing a supply overnight if he goes to sleep regression. Thank you so much. Trisha, do women normally have to um, pump the other side if they nurse the baby on one side? Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. The idea is that we want supply and demand to be aligned. So if the baby is only asking for one side, your body will adjust and downregulate production a little bit so that your breasts don't get uncomfortably full in between feeds and nurse from the other side at the next feeding. Now, as long as her baby is gaining weight normally, then that's fine. If she is trying to increase her supply because she's been supplementing or her baby's not gaining weight normally, then yes, she would technically need to pump, but not necessarily um, in the middle of the night. There's other ways to increase your supply. But if she's exclusively breastfeeding, baby's gaining weight well, and the baby only wants one side in the night, then that's fine. You just nurse one side and the other breast will adjust to the longer interval between feeds. So she wasn't asking our opinion on this, but did you have any comments on the vertigo she's experiencing? Well, it could be two things. Um, well, it could be multiple things, but two main things come to come to my mind. One is that sometimes women can early on in breastfeeding experience a little wave of nausea um, with the oxytocin letdown that happens. Um, also, it's easy for moms who are breastfeeding exclusively to get low blood sugar and easily dehydrated. And you can feel a little, uh, dizzy and nauseous, nauseous. You can feel a little dizzy and nauseous from that. Okay. So she needs to make sure she's probably eating before she goes to bed. Maybe she's going too long, um, without eating from dinner until middle of the night when she's waking up. Hey there, all you amazing, strong and beautiful women especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, 
underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code down to birth. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Hi, my name is Beth. Um, I'm calling from Denver. I am currently 14 weeks pregnant with twins, and this is my well, will be my second um, birth. I have a seven-year-old boy. I really appreciate your podcast. It was referred to me by a friend, and it's been a wealth and a bank of knowledge for me. Um, so, thank you for what you're doing. My question is: When I went in for my first visit on my eight-week appointment, my doctor then told me that I had bacteria in my urine from my first visit, and therefore, I was going to need penicillin in my IV at delivery. I asked her if this was a non-negotiable because I didn't really understand why, if I had time for the bacteria to subside or if it was life-threatening to the baby. And she did tell me it was pretty much a non-negotiable. So I guess my question is, is there a chance that if I had bacteria in my urine at eight weeks, that it can subside by 40 weeks? 
And is penicillin necessary in my IV to keep both of my babies safe? Thank you so much, and I appreciate all you guys do. You want to kick this one off? GBS bacteria in the urine? Well, she did not specify GBS. She said she tested positive for bacteria in her urine at eight weeks, and her doctor is telling her that IV antibiotics are non-negotiable in labor because she has bacteria in her urine. Well, I assume. Yeah. So in this question, if in this question, she didn't actually say if it's GBS bacteria, but if we assume that it is, we do know from our GBS deep dive, we do know that if GBS presents in a woman's urine in pregnancy, she definitely has a higher colonization than if it doesn't. And while I don't like the word non-negotiable, it is reasonable to strongly consider antibiotics during labor if that is the case. What do you think, Trisha? Well, I think the the part about non-negotiable is really important. Um, it is always negotiable. She can certainly decline the antibiotics even if she has GBS in her urine. But when you do listen to our GBS episode, and we break down all the statistics of the you know, chances of the worst case scenario, if a mother has GBS and how it impacts her, her newborn. Um, and there is a difference between just having it in your vagina versus having it in the urine. And it is more likely that your baby will be colonized if it's in the urine. So I think we'll leave it at that. And and the GBS episode will explain it further. But first of all, she really needs to find out if this doctor is telling her this because she has GBS or just because she had bacteria in her urine. She could have different bacteria. She could have a UTI that just needs to be treated. That doesn't mean that you need antibiotics in labor. And it is worth mentioning that the GBS episode, the deep dive episode that Trish is referring to was last week's episode 183. And the deep, deep dive content is available on our Patreon platform. So patreon.com slash down to birth show for all of that information and for downloadables to our deep dive episodes. So hopefully that's helpful. And again, if we we presumed it was GBS, if it wasn't GBS, then definitely get in touch with us and let us know what's going on because that was our our only assumption, right? Yes. <laughs> I don't know whether, yeah. If he said antibiotics in labor, I'm, I can't imagine it would be like a UTI or something. Well, if it's a UTI, then she should be treated now. now. Right. So, so I can't imagine that it was anything else if it wasn't right. a urinary tract infection. All right. Let's go to the next one. Hi, ladies. Thank you so much for all you do. My question is regarding late birth and early milestones. My son was born at 41 and five days, and he's four and a half months now and is already rolling both ways from stomach to back and back to stomach. Um, he's sitting up unassisted and has starting moving, started moving himself forward in the form of an army crawl or getting to hands and knees and flopping himself forward over and over again. Um, have you ladies ever noticed a correlation between a baby staying in utero longer and achieving milestones earlier? I'm honestly shocked that my baby is already doing all of these things with no pressure from us. The only thing I can say that we have done for him is not putting him in um, constraining contractions like uh, bouncers or swings or yeah, things like that, and we've been giving him lots of floor time and tummy time from early on. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. 
I can I can already envision all the women listening to this just freaking out that their baby isn't early on the motor skills. And unless you're dealing with a very specific situation, like a very premature baby, of course, they're going to take longer with motor skills. It just doesn't matter. Um, my son was that child. He was born at 40 weeks and two days, and he was super, super early on motor skills. He, he was walking fully upright, walking at eight months. The pediatrician said like, he's the first point on that curve. And it's easy to celebrate when you're a parent and think, oh, good. My baby must be so healthy and their muscle tone is so good. They're just different. My daughter walked months and months and months later than her brother. She talked months and months earlier than he. It just doesn't matter. Babies are on their own curves. We do know from episode 152 that we did with On Track Baby, the occupational therapist sisters, we do know that it does serve you when you have your baby basically free on a blanket on the floor, just naturally developing their own skills and not confined, with the exception of slings, which they were totally supportive of. But I don't know. I don't think that there's research out there to show week by week if your baby is born at 40 weeks versus 41 weeks. I don't really think there's going to be a correlation out there. I agree with everything you've said. Especially the part about not comparing and don't celebrate too much because your next baby too might be, be on totally a totally different. different curve. Yeah. Right. I think the I think the the best thing she said was that she has kept her baby out of restrictive devices. I think that's probably the the most important part of this is that she's given her baby the opportunity to work on these skills earlier. And she may just have a baby who's inclined to develop earlier as well. Yeah. Um, so don't look too much into it. You're doing great <laughs> no matter what, especially if the baby is getting time to move their muscles and develop at their own pace. I paid very little attention to milestones. I can't even, I, I do remember my middle child walked on her first birthday because it was actually the day. At 12 months. On. See, that was on the months. later side. My daughter was my, around that age. My first was later than that. And I don't remember my third. <laughs> Sorry, North. Um, but that's how little. That's, <laughs> you and I are how, both, Trisha, you and I are both third children too. <laughs> we know that's how it goes. <laughs> I'm sure my mom couldn't tell me when I walked. Um, right. But I, my point is that I put so little emphasis on paying attention to those milestones that I actually don't really even remember them. It just doesn't matter that much. They all develop in their own time. I guess it's, it's like, okay. I guess it's like, if you feel good, then, then go ahead and feel good. You have every right to yeah, feel good about it, but then otherwise that. just let go of it and don't worry about otherwise, it. Otherwise don't worry about it. Don't stress over it. That's oh my the gosh. thing. No. And keep your baby out of all those plastic devices. Hi, Cynthia and Tricia. Um, I'm calling in because I have a question about postpartum support. Um, so I'm not a mom yet and have not given birth, but I'm in the stage of life where a lot of my friends are starting to have children. Um, I also have two sister-in-laws that are currently pregnant, and I want to be supportive and helpful, but I'm struggling to know how to do that without feeling intrusive. Um, I also sometimes struggle with meal ideas for just me and my husband, and I'm a bit terrified of the idea of cooking for someone else. Um, can you please just give some specific meal suggestions? What does a nutritious a nutritious meal for a postpartum mom even really consist of? Thank you both so much. Bye. What does a, post, a nutritious postpartum meal consist of? Protein. Quiche always comes to mind for me. You can eat it for breakfast, you can eat it for lunch, you can eat it for dinner, it can last for days, it's easy, 
Yeah. Or hearty foods. Soups are great. Yeah. I know you'd say soups. Warming, warming foods, curries, wonderful. So if she can get creative. I think one thing that would be really fun would be um, before her friend has the baby, ask the friend to uh, send you like three of her favorite recipes. It takes all the guesswork out of it and it'll be fun for you to make a new recipe. You'll feel like you're doing something great for her. I love the idea also of giving the mother like non-open-ended questions, not like, what can I, what can I do for you? What right. can I bring? But right. to say, listen, I'm going to the store. I'm picking up this, this, and li- this, that, and the other thing. Which one of these is the most helpful for me to bring to you? Mm-hmm. Like put choices in front of her rather than leaving it so open-ended because when it's just like, what can I do for you? She's most people are always going to say nothing. I'm fine. No worries. Thank you for the offer. It, it's hard. It's hard to ask for specific things, but if you give her specific things to choose from, she'll choose one. That reminds me of a nice moment. Um, I was visiting a postpartum woman and I was, I texted her a little while before I got there and I said, I'm stopping at the store. Um, please tell me what I can get you. And she was like, oh no, we're pretty much all set. And I said, well, I'm getting a grocery bag and I'm filling it. So you can either tell me what to put in it or I'm going to pick things myself. And then suddenly she said, thank you so much and listed a bunch of things. And I felt so great about it. And the other thing is um, drop things off and, and say, it'll be at your door at this time. No need to get up. No need to say hello to me. It's just there for you. She's going to take it and she's going to be very happy about it. It is time for quickies. Shall I begin? Yeah, please. Okay. First one. Um, somebody suggested I drink a glass of wine to speed up labor. What is it with alcohol and labor? Exclamation point, question mark. After being told to abstain for the whole pregnancy? Question mark, question mark. Yeah, that's weird. I, I don't think it's actually. It's not to speed up, right? I always no, thought it was to calm no. nervous moms when they're told I that. I think so. Yes. Sometimes in early labor, you might get the recommendation to have a glass of wine so you, that you can relax, calm down, um, wait for labor to kind of kick into high gear. But I don't think alcohol speeds up labor. And even if it did, you don't need alcohol to get (laughs) labor going either way. Let's just avoid it. Have some chamomile tea. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Next. Best thing for a baby if they have jaundice. Sunlight, breast milk. Yes. More breast milk, sunlight. The jaundice is cleared by putting more through the digestive tract. So the more they eat, the faster it clears. Now, the argument for formula comes in there because a lot of women are told to give the baby formula because it forces the baby to poop more and then get rid of the jaundice. But research actually doesn't support that. And colostrum and breast milk are what you just want to keep giving the baby. Yes, it's really about feeding them more and ideally breast milk. Yes. Thumb sucking versus pacifier. Do you have a preference? Thumb. That's my preference. Rest first. Mm. Um, but if a baby naturally starts sucking their thumb and you want to encourage that, go for it. Okay. Next. One thing you should definitely have in a home birth. Privacy. <laughs> Privacy. What a good answer. Is it okay to have sex during the two-week wait when trying to conceive? So what wait is she talking about? I think she's talking about the wait between ovulation and confirmation of pregnancy. Do you mean ovulation at which point they had sex already and now they just can't stop having sex for the next two weeks? So they just want to, they want permission to keep doing it. 
<laughs> is that what's going on? I'm not sure. Or have but they yes, not had you can sex certainly yet. have sex. You can have all the sex. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Have sex. Next is if water birth is safe per the World Health Organization, why do my midwives tell me I can't? Why do my midwives tell me I can't receive my baby in the water? Because they're midwives. Because they practice in a hospital that has policies and protocols and won't allow them to. She answered her own question. Right. Yeah, you can receive the baby in water. So never mind anyway what the agencies say. Let's go to the world experts in these things. And Barbara Harper of Water Birth International is the world expert. She's been on the podcast a couple of times, but episode 100 is the one you want where she talks about how beneficial it is for a baby to be born into water. So if you're inclined to do that, definitely get the right education for it and go for it. Next. Last one. Vaginal prolapse. How common is it? Will it go away? And can I have more kids if I have it? Well, I mean, we typically have bladder, rectal, uterine. Don't I we think- like to end on a fun one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is a more thought process went into this. Okay, wait, here's one. Here's one. Um, yes, you can have more kids and it will go away, but you need assistance. You need to see a um, pelvic floor specialist. Moving on. Does eating dates actually help or make a difference in labor? Doesn't it? Yes. I it say yes, but has have they researched it or do yes. we just... Good. No, it actually, there's some good data on it. Six, I believe it's six red dates a day in late pregnancy, 37 weeks on, um, is associated with faster, shorter labors. All right. Well, Tricia, in two minutes, you have a breastfeeding appointment. So we got to wrap it up. But thank you, everyone, for joining us on this Q&A for extended episodes. Join us on patreon.com slash down to birth show. You not only get all our extended episodes right there, but you also get downloadable crib sheets for our deep dive episodes. So check it out. We'll catch you all next week. I will see you in. All right. We're teaching tonight. All right. Got to prepare for that. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Oh my gosh. Did you see, uh, did you see when we asked her quickies on Instagram today? The best one. We're like, quickies, what are your quickies? One of them said, what's your advice for having an unassisted home birth? <laughs> oh, oh gosh. That is a quickie. Well, let's so, see if we can okay, answer yeah, that in 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, we'll answer that in 30 seconds or less.